The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box with Karen Cho, Steve Sedgwick and me, Jeff Cutmore. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Wall Street closes in the red with the Nasdaq hitting its longest daily losing streak since 2016. Treasury yields rising while the Fed's Thomas Barkin warns interest rates must stay high until inflation falls. Reports UK Prime Minister Liz Truss is preparing to cut energy bills for millions as part of a package worth more than £100 billion. This as the new leader sets out her agenda. I am confident that together we can ride out the storm, we can rebuild our economy and we can become the modern, brilliant Britain that I know we can be. Uh, Gazprom signing a deal to allow Chinese customers to pay in rubles and yuan as Russia looks to reduce its reliance on the dollar. Plus, uh, Goldman Sachs warning European household energy bills could surge by $2 trillion by next year as the CEO of Uniper warns of a dark winter ahead. The worst is still to come. We've seen gas prices rising since the beginning of this year. What we see on the wholesale market is 20 times the prices that we've seen two years ago. 20 times. And Chinese exports slow in August with spiking global inflation impacting demand, while output is hit by fresh COVID outbreaks and energy supply issues. Now, as always uh, on Squawk Box, the uh, top stories are carefully curated. Um, the stories are designed to find the ones that have the greatest impact on the maximum number of people. But I think this morning the top story gets the title of stating the bleeding obvious. And it's a repetition, effectively, of everything that we've been listening to for the past few months. So I'll, I'll just read it. And then if you want to weigh in on this, you can. But Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin says interest rate increases will have to continue until policymakers are convinced that inflation is going down. In an interview with the Financial Times, Barkin said the central bank will need to tighten policy to keep real rates in positive territory. Several Fed officials have indicated in recent weeks that the pace of rate hikes will not slow, with the central bank set for another 75 basis point hike at this month's meeting. Now, congratulations to the FT for having that interview. But I, I, is it just me? Or does it sound an awful lot like what every Fed speaker has said for the last goodness knows how many months? To be fair, they were saying until they were blue in the face and right. the market was still betting on a Powell pivot, which was incorrect, of course, as we saw the Jackson Hole outing. So perhaps they just feel the need to reinforce it a few more times. But you know, that said, we are in a world of repetition. We were mentioning yesterday that Putin is weaponizing energy supplies. I think we've right. been in that phase for a while, too. So we might just be in that, that uh, point in time where we have to repeat everything so the messages hit home. What we haven't said so far is the bit I was going to do at the wall, but do you yeah. know what? I'll make my way over there eventually, but I thought I'd... I'd... What? what? The director Sorry. and the producer? You, Did you, you hear, hear that? The barracking that Did Steve's now getting that? from the technical team and the they producer. They just all went, oh. I know, I know. Big, big massive like sigh, wasn't it? Pitch. 
sucking the energy out of the show. We've only just started. I'm going to remind Mike and Adam, the two people barracking the mic, this is called television. All right, God, blimey. You want to watch a scripted programme? Go to the other side. It's really scripted there. Apparently all the questions for the anchor are scripted as well. Did you know that? Is that right? Yes, it is. Is (laughs) We don't do scripts here. But look, the bleeding obvious here, to me, is that the markets are having the biggest hissy fit of all time because every time we get a decent bit of data, we go down again. We had some really solid, respectful data. Thank goodness the ISM services was better than expected. Every single subcomponent, new orders, you name it, in the ISM services was solid yesterday. And what is it the market wants? The market, we always ask this question, does the market want good or bad data? Well, yesterday the market wanted bad data. It wants anything to clutch onto that the market isn't going to um, basically have to contend with higher rates. I remind our viewers that higher rates equal two things, not just a response to inflation, but actually because policymakers, if they have higher rates, think that it can handle it, think that growth is okay, think that employment is going to remain solid as well. But the market, which doesn't like the cost of financing, boo-hoo, is having a hissy fit about it. Well, guess what? This is now the reckoning time for whether you have a business model that can actually be through the cycle rather than just when interest rates are low uh, and everyone's chucking money at everything left, right and centre. I thought the reaction yesterday was more of a delayed reaction to the European energy story. And don't forget, Wall Street had been Did shut you? over the weekend. We'd had uh, European markets reacting. I, and think, the I think the Nord Stream 1 story was a fairly uh, dominant factor for global markets. Think, I, OK, I, I disagree. I think the 30-year going to the highest level since 2014 was purely about US domestic rather than about European energy. Um, just to weigh in on the interest rate story. But the reality is, you know, um, either what we are witnessing here is a resetting of long overdue uh, monetary discipline, right? So we can argue that that is the case, that these lifting of interest rate moves are ultimately something that we've needed for the global economy for a very long time. Or you can make the case that because this is structural inflation coming from supply side problems, that this is the biggest mistake in the history of central banking um, in our lifetime. Uh, And we will have to wait and see how this plays out here. But ultimately, the argument could be made in the middle of, you know, the the old um, central bank saw going all the way back to the origins of central banking is that you provide liquidity when there are times of distress and the market needs liquidity. With energy prices where they are, could anybody argue that this is not a time Mm. of distress for the global economy? And yet what we have, you listen to Thomas Barkin, he gave that terrific FT interview where he repeated (laughs) the same thing we've been hearing ad nauseum. The messaging continues to be we are fighting the inflation problem that actually we don't understand. Uh, and we will have to wait and see how this plays yeah. out here. And but it's clear which way the markets are reading it. And there is a difference between being more hawkish and being hawkish, i.e. when you've got massively negative real rates, hugely negative real rates. I would still argue that central banks are being more hawkish they would than they were, less dovish rather than hawkish. I know that's a tough concept for some. More hawkish, less dovish, not hawkish.
Markets fell yesterday. Michael and Adam are really happy now. Oh, he's back on track. So the markets fell yesterday because as Karen's saying, we've given you a market here. Could be in the European story. As I'm saying, maybe about the US data. But you've got two ideas, which probably you can protest both of them as well. Let's move on to the Treasuries. I mentioned the 30-year trading at its highest level since 2014. 3.48, 3.5 is where it was yesterday. 10-year up to 3.341. Short end of the curve, still very solid. In fact, look at that. That's pretty solid across the curve, isn't it? Around 3.5%. Dollar cross is again kind of levels that are absolutely jaw-dropping look at the yen for instance thank you 144 how is the boj not i know for your exporters it's great news potentially but i mean look at that 144 for one of the highest energy consumers in terms of imported energy of any major nation on planet earth 144 i think that's enormous perhaps even more interesting than that the fact that we've got a 0.98 handle now just about on the euro dollar sterling was all about and by the way sterling work from jeff down at downing street yesterday extraordinary stuff there as well i'm here some of the big beasts of the political commentary a little bit worried about their jobs now at 114.18 is where sterling is currently trading got a small smile out of him let's have a look at the oil price and where it's currently trading this i think again I love markets and I find them fascinating. I really do. And I hope that some of that comes across. But look at this. You've had an OPEC cut. It was tiny. It really was inconsequential. But it was the messaging around that. We will try and defend prices. I think we all know that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, wants $100 a barrel. He wants that as a floor, not as a cap. And yet his half-brother, Abdulaziz bin Salman, his Royal Highness, has been unable to defend that with rhetoric and action so far. That says a lot about the demand picture. Top of the CNBC.com uh, at the moment is Nomura talking about another small cut to the growth in China. I think, and I said it yesterday, I think that's where the action is. We're all distracted looking at Europe over here. But if the Asian demand drops off, I think that's really important because that's where the X factor and the extra barrels demanded was. And that's going to be where the X factor is. The extra barrels not needed will be. I can assure you that's where the absolute key. Watch China, I would suggest. That's where the action is. Because I understand it from my friends in the uh, oil world, and I, I still have a few of them as well, is that the competition to sell barrels to Asia is so hot amongst OPEC members because they're worried about the undercut from the Russians as well, who can't sell it necessarily to the West anymore. That is a vicious battle going on behind the scenes. Let's have a look at the Asian indices as well. Where are we trading on these as well? Hang Seng down 1.6%. Shanghai Composite flat, ASX 200 down 1.4%. The Nikkei again under a little bit of pressure, 083 of 1% lower. Let's get to the opening calls for European markets. What are they? What are they? I haven't even seen them. Still not seeing them. Oh, here we go. The big declines. But then to be fair, it was a robust performance from the European markets yesterday as well. So, um, Liz Truss, yeah. fascinating lady. I've heard yeah. a lot of commentary about her already. I've yes. met her once or twice along the road as well. Um, she's got some work to do. She has, doesn't she? And expectations are so low, uh, I think, as we were discussing before the programme, and, and you see that everywhere, that actually she should be able to step over these low expectations. But we will have to see. Yeah, uh, UK... great line. Actually, sorry, I'll, just, I'll give you a great line. That, that, that Margaret Thatcher mm. in, inherited uh, you know, the, the back end of the 70s inflation plus industrial dispute. Um, David Cameron inherited um, the great financial crisis. Boris Johnson inherited the mother of all rows uh, over Europe. 
Liz Truss has inherited all of them. <laughs> I thought that was quite a tough line I heard this morning, but you kind of get where the commentator's coming from. It's a very good line, isn't it? And I think the, uh, the number one issue that she's going to look at is obviously the energy cap uh, and what happens with energy prices here. So the UK Prime Minister, Liz Truss, is set to cut taxes and cap energy bills this week, apparently, as her first action in office. Speaking outside Downing Street, the newly installed Prime Minister promised to take, quote, bold action to deal with the energy crisis. Her plan could include the government borrowing up to £90 billion to subsidise energy bills and freeze average household bills at £2,500 a year. Meanwhile, Brussels is moving ahead with plans to impose a national windfall tax on energy companies' profits to help offset the impact of soaring gas prices. The uh, proposed levy, uh, which will be debated on Friday, would target fossil fuel producers and low-carbon power generators, according to people familiar with the matter, and would also include a price cap on Russian pipeline gas. We're speaking to Hadley on the sidelines of the Gas Tech conference in Milan yesterday. The CEO of the German utility Uniper echoed Schultz's sentiments. The worst is still to come. We've seen gas prices rising since the beginning of this year. Uh, utilities have increased their prices 40% almost every quarter. But there's, the worst is still to come. What we see on the wholesale market is 20 times the prices that we've seen two years ago. 20 times. So that's why I think we need to have a really an open discussion with everyone taking responsibility how we can fix that. China will start paying for gas from Russia in yuan and rubles instead of dollars. The move is part of Russia's plan to stop its reliance on the US dollar. Gazprom says the switch is mutually beneficial for Moscow and Beijing and that will give an additional push to the development of both economies. Equinor has warned that margin calls for European energy companies exceed one and a half trillion euros. The energy giant says government bailouts across Europe are covering just a fraction of that bill and small and medium-sized firms will continue to struggle. The company says demand needs to be significantly reduced if Russia cuts off gas supplies completely. Goldman Sachs expects European household energy bills to surge by 2 trillion euros by next year, with the average household spending as much as 500 euros a month. The lender suggested energy bills will represent 15% of European GDP at their height, adding that the market is underestimating the scale of the crisis. The ECB is set to hold its first monetary policy meeting since July on Thursday with a swath. Swath or swathe? Swathe. I'm a swathe. Some people say swath. Do they? Yeah. Well, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, plethora? 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 Plethora. Uh, plethora. Disingenuous or disingenuous? Uh, disingenuous. disingenuous. Yeah, we always used to get that one wrong, didn't we, for years. Okay. Hyperbola or hyperbole? Uh, hyperbola. Yeah, me too. Okay, a swathe of banks predicting a 75 basis point hike. It's biggest move in almost 20 years. Mike and Adam can't say anything now. They've already used all their tools, their, their, their ammo this morning. Uh, the ECB is under pressure to act as soaring energy prices and a faltering economy. Currency have seen the eurozone post record inflation prints, with the August number coming at 9.1% on the year. Traders aren't so sure, though, with money market odds of a 75 basis point hike 
are on the decline after PMI and industrial orders data disappointed earlier this week. Well, let's get a voice on this one. Katarina Utomol joins us now, senior European economist at Allianz. Goodness me, your job's tricky at the moment, Katarina. Nice to see you. Thank you for joining us from Cologne this morning. Well, what do you think? Should they go for 75 or should they just hold off a little bit? Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, absolutely. I think the ECB will join the 75 basis point club tomorrow. Um, I think it will do so because it's ignoring essentially the one side of its dilemma, namely the faltering economy, focusing solely on fighting inflation to save its credibility and also, of course, to shore up the euro. And um, hence, it doesn't want to disappoint market expectations. What does the follow-up pathway look like then if they go with 75 basis points? Because we keep talking about front-loading and then if we get too much up front in terms of these rate hikes, that perhaps there isn't much room left because of the growth story, the growth profile in Europe. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, uh, it's a closing window of opportunity, a very small one. Um, so the ECB needs to be quite active. And we expect um, interest rate increases at every single policy meeting up until February, because that is the point when we expect headline and core inflation at least to have peaked. Um, and we will see quite a bit of um, action, let's say it's front loading, as you said. Um, so uh, we will expect another 50 basis point hike in October 25 in each December and February before it will get a pause. Uh, Katerina, I'm not a senior European economist. I'm a layman when it comes to these things, but I'm quite frankly confused. Um, The ECB is lifting the cost of money, i.e. the price that governments will have to pay to borrow, at a time when all European governments seem to be committing to bailing out consumers over the higher energy price. Um, they are effectively punching themselves in the face because they are going to increase the cost at which they're going to have to borrow to subsidise both businesses and consumers. And ultimately, the actions that they're taking over energy prices are going to fuel this energy-led inflation. Am I missing something? Or are they shooting themselves in the foot as they try to appeal to the populist sentiments of those who think governments should provide all welfare? Yeah, I think um, what we see at the moment is that the ECB, um, as I said, needs to save its credibility, hence focuses on the inflation side. And it's it's quite simple. It needs to raise rates with inflation uh, five times its target um, uh, moving into autumn. We expect it to go into double-digit territory. Um, and at the same time, we see governments, you know, pulling all strings to support households. And um, I think there is um, there's reason for that, obviously, because uh, we also expect the electricity bill, for instance, for the economy as a whole um, to uh, increase at least five times. So moving from one GDP, uh, GDP point in 2019 to, um, to four to five uh, GDP points in the large eurozone um, economies. Um, looking at the increases that we have seen at the beginning of the year. And that's a huge pressure, obviously, for households, but also for companies. Um, I think this this is a necessary evil and that policy is not completely aligned. Um, This is obviously a very unfortunate situation. We don't have a replay of the COVID situation where monetary and fiscal policy are moving in the same direction and can reinforce um, uh, their work. Katerina, the ingredients look awful when you have inflation 
plus stunningly high debt levels, plus, as you and Jeff were just discussing, enormous spending commitments, plus a lot of populist, um, dare I say, um, politicians in the ascendancy, especially in perhaps arguably Europe's most important debt market, which is the BTPs as well. Why aren't we going to have a sovereign debt crisis, Katerina, especially in Italy? I think all the ingredients are there. I think in in moment of crisis, and we have had a lot of those recently, um, we know that Europe comes together. And we can already see that uh, that Europe-wide, for instance, uh, this electricity price cap or also tapping these uh, windfall profits um, is being debated currently. And I expect to see a solution that will be implemented over the next few weeks, even though it will be challenging, let's say, um, the implementation itself. Um, so I think that Europe will come together and will find again a solution um, also for Italy. And I can imagine we already see discussion around having um, a central money pot again. Um, so this would be something like an, an energy EU fund, for instance, that could help um, support uh, customers, households. Um, we will probably see some reactivation of some EU-based um uh, support vehicles like Shore, for instance, because I also expect furlough to go up and this will put additional pressure on fiscal purses. So, um, yes, clearly this is um, it's a it's a very tough time for Europe. Um, it's not just this winter. We all focus on this winter, but it will be probably equally challenging all through next year. And um, if we don't show up um, a lot of alternative uh, gas supply, uh, for instance, we still have this Damocles word of rationing hang over the European economy next winter. So these are very tough times. And um, and I think that we'll find a European solution to ensure that this is not Eurozone debt crisis 2.0. The bleak outlook that you paint are very much a dominating factor too for the euro. And we talk about the 20-year low that we've crashed to on the currency. The strategy of go big or go home, there's jumbo-sized rate hikes from the ECB potentially. Will that make any difference to the currency from here? And what are the implications, if not, uh, for inflation? I think um, on the euro at this point, um, uh, what the 75 basis point hike will do is uh, is simply to provide a floor. Uh, so we won't see, um, let's say, a further uh, depreciation, a further weakening. Um, I don't think it will catapult the, the euro necessarily above parity or higher for that matter. Um, uh, so this, this will only happen, let's say, um, uh, um, a strengthening of the euro will only happen in a context where we have uh, solved the um, the gas crisis, the energy crisis, and and that will take longer. So we expect the euro to be weakened for some time. You know, we seem to have gone uh, over the last six months from Europe isn't having a recession to Europe's only having a mild recession to, well, Europe's going to have a recession and we, we're not quite sure, sure how bad it is. I mean, uh, give us your sense of how many quarters of recession we may ultimately see for the eurozone and when it begins. Yeah, so our call is recession inevitable, um, starting at the turn of the year. So um, this will be um, a very disappointing uh, final quarter to this year that was meant to be the post-COVID recovery year. Um, we expect uh, contracting private consumption to push the economy into recession and also industry going into self-rationing mode. So we think, you know, the risk of rationing, formal rationing at this point, at least in this winter, is quite low. Again, next winter is a different story. We'll have to do a lot to get there. Um, but uh, as industry is putting production on hold, um, uh, we'll see some two, uh, two nasty quarters around the turn of the year. And then um, a third 
um, uh, setback in spring and will only see a, a, a recovery, a moderate one actually, um, to unfold in the second half of next year. Katharina Jamal, thank you very much for joining us, a senior European economist from Allianz. Elsewhere, Bill Browder, the CEO and founder of Hermitage Capital Management, spoke to our colleague Tanya at Briar overnight from the One Young World Summit in Manchester. The longtime critic of Russian President Putin says the shuttering of the Nord Stream pipeline could be an act of self-sanctioning. Every day Putin receives a billion dollars a day um, from the West for the sale of oil and gas. And as long as we continue to give him money for his resources, he can continue to pay for equipment to kill Ukrainians. And so that's got to stop. Now, interestingly, <laughs> we have a hard time stopping it, but Putin is doing that work for us. Um, by shutting off the Nord Stream pipeline, he's effectively self-sanctioning. And yes, it's going to cause great pain to uh, Western Europe. It's going to cause great pain in the UK. But that pain, I think, can be ultimately absorbed, adjusted, and, and eventually disposed of. Uh, but, but Putin is not going to be able to replace the customers for all the gas that he's selling into Europe. 90% of the gas that Russia produces gets sold to Europe. They get sold into pipes, which can't be diverted. And Europe is not going to buy Russian gas in the future. And as a result, I think he's done himself an amazing um, self-sacrifice, which will serve our purposes, serve Ukrainians' purposes in the end. Were you surprised by that move? Um, I'm not surprised by any move that Putin makes, because Putin is an extremely vindictive man. He's ready to cause himself pain to try to cause his enemies pain. Um, however, uh, I look at this and I say, this is, a, this is the actions of a man who's desperate. This is not a chess player. This is a, this is a checkers player. Um, this is someone who's really sort of, we, we put him on the ropes here. And, um, and this is not the actions of a man who's confident. But do you feel the global leaders have been strong enough, Bill? And of course, the uh, newly elected Prime Minister Liz Truss, the Kremlin has said, it's hard to imagine anything worse than Liz Truss. What's your take on that? Well, if that's what they say, I can't imagine anything better than Liz Truss. Um, she, she was at very, very clear, very forceful um, about Russia, about Ukraine. And uh, I've got great confidence that, that the foreign policy that Britain uh, pursued in terms of being tough on Russia will, will continue in the same vein and perhaps even tougher. Uh, Bill Browder there talking to Tanya. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Another key Chinese data metric disappoints as the yuan flirts with a key psychological level against the dollar. We'll be live in Asia with that report in just a moment. And for more on how European governments plan to combat the spike in energy bills, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
Chinese export growth came in much weaker than expected in August as fresh COVID lockdowns slowed production and inflation pressures hit overseas demand. And let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, plenty to unpack in this data, but first up, happy birthday to you. Mm. <laughs> Thank you very much, Karen. Good morning to you. Yeah, as you say, disappointing set of data out of China today. Uh, the export side, a real surprise to the downside. It's interesting because one story we've really been following in recent weeks is the UN. And of course, that falling, weakening to that two-year low against the dollar. But that didn't seem to do much to help lift some of those exports. And I think that just goes to underscore the weakness when it comes to that overseas demand. There are a few factors behind this, of course, we did get some strong export numbers last year, so perhaps some unflattering comparisons, you could say, but it was largely consistent, this data, with a number of other leading indicators. You had container throughput, for instance, at the biggest ports in China, actually only growing a smidge, around 0.9% in August compared to the double digits that we saw in July. And we also, of course, got those PMI numbers out in recent days, which did show those new export orders actually contracting. So all that factored in. And this was all exacerbated, of course, by the domestic factors as well, with China having these lockdowns in critical manufacturing hubs. You had a city like Iwu, of course, at the start of August in three days of lockdown. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but this is a really big export hub. It's known as Santa's workshop. And so what we saw was a lot of those Christmas-related orders actually being held up, those deliveries at a time when this is really peak demand. And you've also had, of course, throughout the month of August, this heat wave really wreaking havoc on power supplies when it comes to some of those factories. We know that that has been taking a hit to a number of sectors companies in the business of things like lithium and chemicals, uh, which has been raising a lot of concerns about the auto sector. And of course, another red flag, certainly for those exports, are imports, because a lot of those commodities that come into China are then re-exported. We saw those imports uh, also coming in below those expectations. We know that this is a demand story over in China. We've got weak consumption. We've got problems in the property sector. And of course, that heat wave wreaking havoc as well. If you look at the commodities, the imports for things like iron ore were down, coal, soybeans and natural gas. And that really just speaks to the productivity story over in China right now. They just don't need as much in the country coming from outside. And that all brought the trade surplus, guys, to $79 billion from that record $101 billion uh, that we saw in the month of July. And we have actually seen that offshore yuan uh, going past that 6.99 level uh, off the back of this data today. Certainly uh, that onshore spot rate is something we are watching very closely as there is an expectation that it could actually test that seven mark before party congress next month. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.